Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode 97 of the Book Cougars, two middle-aged women on the hunt for a good read. I'm Emily. And I'm Chris. We're going to jump right in because we have so much to talk about. Yeah, and we have an exciting announcement to start with. Indeed. I know we just finished a read-along. We're announcing our next read-along for the second quarter of 2020. Drum roll. We're going to read Go, Went, Gone by Jenny Erpenbeck. Yes, from 2017. Um, it's translated by Susan Bernofsky. We're staying in Europe. We are. Yeah. So last book was Drive Your Plow Over the Bones of the Dead, which was written by a Polish author. And Erpenbeck is a German writer. I've read one book by her, Visitation, that I loved. I gave it five stars on Goodreads. Yeah, and this one has gotten great reviews, and it's an interesting story. It's told from the point of view of a man this time, so that's a little different. Yeah, a retired professor who is, I think, in Berlin, and he gets involved in the lives and circumstances of a lot of immigrants who were there from Africa, I believe, and learns about their circumstances. Yeah, and it starts to fill his life, a life that I think had, it was waning in the sense of things that he had to do. He had retired and things like that. So something new is filling his time. So yeah. I'm really excited to read it. We're going to be talking about it on the episode that airs on May 26th. So we're giving you lots of time to find it. The one good thing, we did some research. I know our library system here in Connecticut has many copies available right on the shelf. Yeah. So and it's in paperback. It's in paperback. It's one thing we like to do with our read alongs is to make sure we choose something that's accessible and readily available. And we know people have a little bit of trouble getting drive your plow over the bones of the dead. So hopefully this one will be a little bit easier to find since it's been around a little longer. Yeah. And then we also want to thank our buddy Shuli for a lovely donation to the book cougars. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Shuli. And she donated using PayPal. Oh, which cool. not many people are doing. And I, someone else recently reached out to send a donation directly and mentioned that Patreon does take out a fee, which is true. And so wanted to just donate directly. And I misspoke and said that I thought PayPal takes out a fee as well, but actually it doesn't. So you can donate directly to us just with our email address, bookcougars at gmail.com via PayPal. So thanks, Julie did that. Thanks yeah. for teaching me something new, Julie. <laughs> thanks, Julie. You've been doing that since I was in kindergarten. <laughs> and thanks to all our Patreon contributors as well. Yeah. We, we really appreciate your support. We really do. It really does make a difference. There are costs associated with this project that we do here at the Book Cougars. <laughs> we also want to mention that our 100th episode is approaching. It is. Three episodes away. Crazy. It's nuts. I, yeah. yeah, who would have ever thought we'd be doing it for this long? I know, it's wonderful. And we are going to have a giveaway. We always do a giveaway when we reach 10 episodes. And we're not sure what it's going to be yet. But, but it'll be, yeah, it'll be something yeah. big-ish. Hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> so we just wanted to mention that. We're, we're getting excited. So we want to share our enthusiasm with y'all. Absolutely. And when I said who, who knew we'd be doing this for this long, I guess my rationale for saying that or my reason for saying that is I maybe didn't think like who would listen to us right exactly <laughs> when we we're, first started we're still not sure that there are well, people out there listening yeah. we think there are because we hear from you every <laughs> once in a while but yeah I know you exactly know, we what just you mean. talk and talk and talk when we're together so right. starting to to do the podcast was 
kind of an experiment and we're I'm so glad we did yeah me too I love I love doing this with you Chris same here so what are you currently reading well I'm currently reading once again the Odyssey by Homer I started it last year the new Emily Wilson translation it's the first major translation of the Odyssey by a woman in a very long time and I started reading it and honestly I don't think I ever really finished it so our buddy Jenny at Reading Envy is doing it as her current read-along and had mentioned doing the audio version. And I had never thought about doing the audio version of Homer. It's narrated by Claire Danes. So I am doing a combination of the audio and the book. And, you know, I love the story of the Odyssey to begin with. But it does open different perspectives listening to it. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. I bet, and Claire Danes has a great voice. I bet it's wonderful to listen to her narration. And I think anytime an actor does it, there's a little bit of the performative aspect to it as well. Yeah, and she she totally doesn't overact it at all. I, I sometimes feel like sometimes you do get that cheesy performance aspect of yeah. it. It's just like, okay, you're acting. I yeah. get it. You know, <laughs> she's a good actor, and so you don't get that. Yeah. Like, you just get the the characters, you know, which I love. Oh, great. And Jenny has a very active Goodreads page. Yeah. And I think she has split it up just like we did for our read along with her. I think she has split it up into the different different ch- chunks. Yeah. yeah. And then yeah. the f- different conversation threads and everything. So it's really helpful to dip into that. Oh, how fun. Sure. Yeah. So oh, cool. I'm enjoying it very much. How about you? What are you reading? I'm reading This Town Sleeps by Dennis E. Staples. This was on a list actually my daughter forwarded to me about highly anticipated books for the first half of 2020 written by Native American authors. And I just dipped into it last night. It's about a young man who's raised on an Ojibwe reservation. And he has come back to live he doesn't live on reservation but he lives back in his hometown nearby never expected to come back and live there and he gets into a relationship with another man who he grew up with who's not out of the closet and it's a very small town so it's creating some concern for this young boy boy I shouldn't say that now anyone that's under 30 seems like a boy to me which is not fair young men you know that he's now in a relationship with someone that everybody knows and was the star football player and some of that sort of thing and he's struggling with that and talking to people about it but trying to keep things under wraps and it just makes me realize that you know, identity is, I don't need to tell you this, it's a its a really complicated thing. And it's complicated by the family that you come from. And I feel like Dennis Staples is doing a really good job with that and um, making me understand it a little bit better, which is why I like to read. Yeah, that's <laughs> you know? great. I've been yeah. hearing really wonderful things about that novel. Yeah, it's really interestingly written from different characters' point of views. There's a little bit of mysticism in it. A dog appears to him as a spirit. So I love that. It's reminiscent of Alice Hoffman to me. I love a little bit of you know, magical realism mm-hmm. in a book. And I know that's very important to the Native culture as well. So I'm just a little bit into it, but really enjoying it. And then I will pass this on to my daughter when I'm done because she's anxiously awaiting reading <laughs> it. And I want to thank Counterpoint Press for sending me this advanced reader's copy. It comes out March 3rd, which is the day that this episode airs. Perfect. So. Again, This Town Sleeps, Dennis E. Staples. 
So what have you just read? I've been busy reading. <laughs> I finished A Good Marriage by Kimberly McCrate. It is not out until May 5th. And when we get to upcoming jaunts, I'm going to talk about a joint jaunt we're going to have with Kimberly McCrate. And I'll give you a link where you can pre-order it if you'd like. And we have t- keep talking about this, but pre-orders really do help authors these days. They really do. This is a dark book with blood splatter. And it's about a marriage that goes south. The wife is found at the bottom of the stairs with lots of blood. And uh, the rest of the book is trying to figure out via different couples living in Park Slope whose children all attend the same fancy pants school, (laughs) how this happened, who the killer is. And it goes back a lot to, you know, the, the question of do we really know the people that we're in relationships with and our neighbors and how lots of times people are running from or trying to hide experiences in their past Mm -hmm. and end up living a life that's much different than where they came from but can you leave your past behind that's one of the questions Kimberly McCrate kind of forces you to look at in this book so I liked it I did not figure out who the killer was I was surprised in the end which is always kind of fun yeah it is it is (laughs) and uh, I I think it's a, a good thriller so I recommend it Again, that's a good marriage, Kimberly McCrate. Well, I just finished a memoir that I completely devoured. Ooh. It just came out on Tuesday. I had an early copy from NetGalley. Thank you for that. Uh, it's The Unexpected Spy, From the CIA to the FBI, My Secret Life Taking Down Some of the World's Most Notorious Terrorists by Tracy Walder. And she had a, a co-author, Jessica Anya Blau. It's uh, out from St. Martin's. I could not put this book down. I, if I had picked it up on a day off, I would have read the whole thing in one sitting, I think. Really amazing mem- memoir. And it's interesting what you said about Kimberly McCrate's book and your identity or your past. Because um, the thing with Tracy's life is as a young girl, she was kind of bullied. And not kind of, she was bullied. She became, she goes to USC, University of Southern California, does join a sorority. So she's the blonde-haired, green-eyed, white girl sorority member who was a big history buff. She's really into history and, you know, current events and things like that. And planned on being a history teacher and ends up in the CIA. Mm. I won't go into every detail about the book. I mean, she she talks about her past, you know, her growing up years, her young adult years, her years in the CIA, her time then in the FBI after that. And she is now uh, teaching history at an all-girls school in Dallas. That's interesting. Full circle. Yeah, totally full circle. And one of the classes that she teaches is called Spycraft. Um. And she talks about, you know, throughout the this her memoir, her earlier experiences are kind of threaded through and built upon or recontextualized as she grows and matures. And she says that towards the end that certain things about her past are about her her past. They're no longer a part of her identity. 
but they're still a part of who she is. And I love the way she grew that throughout her whole narrative and contextualizes that because I do think like you, things happen to you in your past and they, it's not that you have to deny them or try and forget about them, which is of course impossible, but you don't have to claim it as your identity anymore. But it does inform Absolutely. Every experience that you move forward having. Yeah, you know? totally. Yeah. But if, you know, things happen to you, you don't have to, if something horrible happened to you, you don't have to embrace the identity of a victim. Of course. Yeah. You know, and I think that's shifted a lot too to survivorhood and, and things like that. But I thought it was a really good way of looking at a woman's life in general, even though she did these amazing career choices that most women don't make when she was in the cia she was a chemical terrorism operative and then in the fbi she was in counterintelligence and what was interesting to me was that she talks a lot about in the cia there wasn't there was little to no sexism or discrimination sexual harassment things but the story was very different in the fbi interesting yeah the fbi is uh there's currently lawsuits going on brought by women who have worked in the FBI uh, hmm. for sexism and discrimination. And really just, you know, she just talks about how unfortunate it is that the FBI is not using the resources that women bring to the table. Yeah. So yeah. I think I, I think it's one of those books that anyone who's interested in women and the development of girls and current events in the United States role in current events and people who are interested in waging peace, it's a must read. Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah. highly, highly recommend it. I'm curious if she had a family because they say a lot of people who join the CIA or the FBI, I think the CIA in particular, they look for people who don't really have family connections. Well, yeah, and it's a lot of people who are young who get cr- recruited out of college because it is, you're, you're on the go. You're yeah. gone for months at a time. So did and she have a family? That's one of the reasons she made the move to the FBI okay. so that she could have a home base in the United States. And she does now. She is now married and she has a child. Okay. So she, she probably just waited later in life to do all of that. I don't know exactly. I didn't pay super close attention to the the years of things, but she was probably, I would say, in her, you know, early 30s when she left the FBI to go to grad school and then to become a teacher. I love that. It was full circle like that. That's great. Yeah. I'm glad you enjoyed it. It's really cool. And it's really fun to read a... I mean, she doesn't go in the weeds about history at all, but it's fun to read a book by someone who's passionate about history and sees how understanding history can really inform current times as well as what to strive for in the future. Yeah. So again, that is The Unexpected Spy by Tracy Walder. It is out now from St. Martin's. I really recommend it. I read Lakewood by Megan Giddings. This is one of the Booktopia authors. The book is out um, March 24th, so just around the corner. You know, one of the things that we didn't say when we were talking about Booktopia, one of the things I have loved over the years is the introduction to authors you've never heard of. Mm -hmm. And Megan Giddings is definitely an author I'd never heard of, partly because this is her debut. (laughs) Um, This was an amazing book. I loved it. It's about a young woman, Lena, who is in college. Uh, The opening of the book, her grandmother, who has in large part raised her, has passed away, and they've been at the funeral for her grandmother. And her mother, Desiree, is really ill and has been ill all of Lena's life 
kind of those mysterious illnesses like fibromyalgia where there's just, you know, you can't really hold down a job sometimes and it's just really hard to live your life and doctors aren't quite sure how to help you. And so Lena gets a letter in the mail inviting her to participate in medical testing, human medical testing, where she will get paid really well and have health insurance, which is critical to her family who's in debt because of her mother's medical bills. So Lakewood is where she ends up. And if you have any kind of trouble with (laughs) medical testing on human beings, this would be a difficult book for you because it doesn't shy away from the actual experiences. It is a novel, so I had to keep telling myself that. But historically, there are certain hospitals that are notorious for having done medical testing on patients without their consent. And rumors of, you know, kids, particularly African American kids being picked up off the street. And I hate to badmouth Johns Hopkins in Baltimore, but they're supposed to be one of the hospitals that did that. And it is also the hospital that's part of the book, um, The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks, Mm -hmm. who is about was a book about Henrietta Lacks, who, you know, had her DNA taken without her consent essentially. Right. And which has informed so much of the medical breakthroughs that have happened around cancer. Right. And other things. I I think the polio vaccine was created because of her cells. So, um, but this is a work of fiction. And it really talks about, you know, what will what are the lengths someone is willing to go to also to help their family, and how you can end up in a situation that you don't really understand and be sold a bill of goods that you don't really understand. There's an arc of the story that discusses what these research facilities often do in the sense of contaminating the land around where they are. And, you know, Flint water crisis is, I think, an example of that. You know, their big industries and medical research facilities are infamous for contaminating groundwater and, you know, just dumping things into the local lake, thinking it's not going to cause any problems. Right. So she really covers a lot of territory with this book. I have to say for a debut, I thought it was fantastically written and really entertaining. And it's not that long, right? It's it's a pretty mm-hmm. slim book. It is. Yeah, I read an e-version, so I, I never really had it physically in my hand, but I read it very quickly. Yeah, right. partly because it's a page turner, but also spare writing. Yeah, mm-hmm. I really enjoyed it. Again, yeah. that's Lakewood by Megan Giddings, and I'm really looking forward to meeting her. That's in cool. May. Yeah. yeah, I'm looking forward to reading that one. I did notice that there are regular giveaways on Goodreads for that book, too. If you're a Goodreads user, check that out. Yeah. And I've heard it called like a cross between the Henrietta Lacks book and Margaret Atwood's The Handmaid's Tale. Yeah, yeah, because there's a group of people who are in this facility having shit done to them that's scary <laughs> yeah <laughs> and you're never quite sure like what exactly are they trying to figure out you yeah. know so yeah all right and also the people who are there who are the medical technicians right mm-hmm. I mean that's interesting too for that to be your job that you go to every day right and I think too you know you think about people who are so focused on some singular aspect of research and don't really maybe know the big picture or they lose touch with what they're doing. It's like building the A-bomb, kind of right. thinking like, oh, my gosh, I was just working on this. I didn't think it would be used to kill millions of people. Right. Yeah. 
Well, and, and how science is then also there's there are good things that come from this research, right? Right. I know. Yeah. yeah exactly. It's complicated. Yeah. I didn't mean to sound like I was trashing it completely. But no. It's yeah. quite true. Yeah. But there are a lot of ethical questions and things yes. people don't think about when they start research and yeah. Well, the other book I read, a novel, also has some scary shit happening in it, but of a different stripe. Uh, I finished The Southern Book Club's Guide to Slaying Vampires by Grady Hendrix. Now, this one isn't out until April 7th. I did get an early copy to read. If his name rings a bell, he's the author of Horror Store, My Best Friend's Exorcism, and Paperbacks from Hell, to name three of his more recent books. He's also a screenwriter. And this book is coming out from Quirk Books, which published Jason Reculik's book that we enjoyed so much yeah the name of which is completely escaping me as i'm sitting here looking at you smiling back at me because you love that book so much too it was kind of like a a bit of a celebration love letter to the 1980s so people who've read it of our generation really you know was a little step back into time it was called the impossible fortress right it was hilarious yeah such as a good is read. he the yeah. author yeah <laughs> um so this one the the southern book club's guide to slaying vampires it started as i said in the last episode when i was just starting it it was kind of like that you know the divine secrets of the yaya sisterhood and fried green tomatoes that kind of southern vibe of these women who are you know, a little quirky and doing their own thing. It gets dark, though, this book. Like, and I at first didn't see it coming. And the first really dark scene, I thought, wow, yeah, wow. I, you know, yikes. It was really gruesome and awful to think about. If you don't like rats, you might have to fast forward through those pages. (laughs) But, you know, Dracula vampires often control rats and wolves and bats and things like that, or they become them. So rats. And then other other darkness happens that is full of blood because it's, you know, vampire stories. I was kind of surprised by that because at first I did think it was this more Southern quirky thing, but then, yeah, it got dark. So that's kind of fun, though. It is fun. I just want to let readers know, like, <laughs> don't be fooled by the cutesy title and... The opening scenes, it, it does definitely get dark. I really enjoyed it, though. Um, I like the vampire because I, I do like my vampires to be mean and nasty. I don't really like romance vampires all that much. And he is definitely mean and nasty and uses people's relationships against them. Mm. And what's funny is, well, you know what? I'm just going to stop talking about it. I don't want to go into too much detail because I think this is one of those books that you do like to see it unfold and maybe not know too much about it. Yeah, it sounds that way. Yeah. So we'll just leave it at that. And if you were into vampire stories or you like Southern Lit, check it out. It is set in Charleston, South Carolina. And again, that's the Southern Book Club's Guide to Slaying Vampires by Grady Hendrix out April 7th. And I read The Red Lotus by Chris Bohalian. This one is out March 17th also just around the corner. And it too has rats in it, which cracks me up. We have a theme. (laughs) We have a theme. So this is about a a young couple who are in a new relationship. I think they've been dating for about six months. They head to Vietnam. They're doing a biking trip of Vietnam, which my son has been to Vietnam three times now for work and says it's the most beautiful country. 
And I feel like Chris Bohalian really portrayed that in this book. And there are pictures of him on Instagram biking in Vietnam because he's quite a prolific bike rider. He posts all the time his bike rides up through Vermont where he lives. So you really get a sense that they're on vacation having a lovely time. And then the male part of the couple disappears, doesn't come back. He had gone out for a long bike ride under the premise of going to visit the sites where both his father was injured during the Vietnam War and his uncle was killed. And so then the a hunt for him starts to ensue with people from the United States Embassy and things like that. And at the same time, it goes back and forth to different points of view. We know that he has been taken by some people and there's some conversations happening between them so you're really informed you know by the different things happening in the different sides of the story throughout the whole book mm. but the overarching plot and again I don't want to ruin this either does have to do with ironically after reading Lakewood medical testing and you know now that we're having this coronavirus scare in the world I think it's really interesting to think about that there are actually medical personnel who are, you know, working with the plague, for example. And there's reasons they do that. And why they do it is to hopefully find cures. I mean, the plague still exists in our world. I think there was just an outbreak of the plague in Madagascar a couple years ago. Yeah, it, it's true. And I think every year a couple Americans get it. As yeah. Well. yeah. Yeah. So this is the story arc of this is about the plague. Wow. And these, this couple met because they worked at a hospital together, stateside. And it's a hospital that has medical research going on. And so that's all I'm going to say, except right. that they do medical research on rats. Oh, my. <laughs> uh, which I know some people have a really hard time with. But I also think that, as we mentioned already, there are advances with modern medicine because of that testing that everybody benefits from. So Chris Bohalian, I haven't read one of his books in a really long time. I love his writing and it was fun to step back into a book written by him because he never disappoints, I don't think. And this one was a real page turner. I was surprised. I didn't realize that it was a thriller when I read about it. So nice. um, again, that's called The Red Lotus, Chris Bohalian out March 17th. I have to say I was sitting on the couch with the gentleman caller this weekend when I was getting towards the end of it. And I actually gasped at one point when the story took a surprising turn. So be ready. All right. <laughs> <laughs> well, the other book I read had nothing to do with rats. Um, I did finish The End of Your Life Book Club by Will Schwalbe. Um, that was narrated by Jeff Harding. It was an audiobook that I did. This one came out in 2012. And I loved it. I mean, it was a beautiful story, a beautiful tribute to his mom. I do want to get my hands on a hard copy just because of all the books that are mentioned. You know, yeah. that's one of the things about at first I was writing down some of the titles that they were mentioning and discussing. But then I thought, yeah, you just need to let that go because there's so many books mentioned um, that he and his mom read. And I'm just going to get a hard copy and handle it that way. <laughs> I know I, when I read it, which I think I read it when it came out because he was a Booktopia author, I had this idea like, oh, I'm going to do one of those years where you just read the books that are mentioned in this book. And mm -hmm. I never did it. Right. But I love the idea of it because it's an amazing list of books or it would be a great resource for your own book club. Right. 
Yeah. Yeah. And some of the books I have read, you know, so yeah. it was great to, to hear about that. Like his mom's favorite book was Gone with the Wind. I love that. Yeah. Which surprised him. He, he didn't know that. And, and I think that's one of the cool thing is, you know, talking with an older person in your life, asking them what books they love and what books shape them. It's, it's just such a great way to get to know somebody and to bond with them a little bit. Yeah. And ask them why that book was so important to them. And because then often that leads to some other stories. Yeah. You know, yeah. Right. That's great. I'm so glad you liked it. Yeah, I really did. It was very, it was heartwarming. It was sad. I did cry at the end. Yeah. Yeah. Again, I I really recommend that one highly. I finished a memoir also called From Scratch, a memoir of love, Sicily and finding home by Tembi Locke. This was one recommended by our buddy Matthew Goodman when he was here. He was the judge for um, a nonfiction award award from Barnes through Barnes and Noble in New York I think I hope I got that right is it nationwide I have no idea that's a good question was it their discover new authors yes yeah yeah but this was for the nonfiction, and he recommended this just kind of in passing to me he said you know with your love of food and memoir I think this is a good one for you and I read it, and then towards the ve- towards the middle, probably, I decided to get the audio because she narrates it, and she's an actress. She's also related to the author Attica Locke, their sisters. And it was so nice to listen to it because there are not passages, but there'll be, you know, sentences in Italian. And it was great to hear her pronunciation and also mm-hmm. just to hear her pronunciation of the various people's names. Mm-hmm. And so I really made headway with it, listening to her read and then going back and reading it myself. One of the cool things is there are some amazing recipes at the back of the book. And if you get the audio, there was a PDF that you could download that has all the recipes. So I did that yesterday. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, And I'm really hoping to make some. This book was sad. It'll break your heart. Her husband, who she met in Florence when she was there as a student and was a chef. Um, They fell in love. They ended up marrying and moving to L.A. And he had um, an initial bout with cancer. They thought he was in remission. They adopted a baby and then his cancer came back. She really touches on a lot of different aspects, one of which is that his parents, who are from Sicily, didn't accept that he was marrying her. Um, not because she was African-American, but because she was an American. Mm. And they really wanted him to stay in his small town in Sicily and marry a local girl and live his life, you know, happily ever after. But the truth is he had already moved to Florence before he met her and, you know, that wasn't going to be the life for him. Mm -hmm. But eventually through his illness, his parents come to visit them in LA and that barrier and wall is broken down. And she, of course, after he passes away is the one that ends up having a a longer lasting relationship with them. Mm via her summer visits to Sicily. And it's really just the story of her getting through her grief, mostly by visiting family um, so she can feel closer to him in Sicily. And I was kind of afraid towards the end, and I I hope this isn't a spoiler, but I thought, oh, I hope she doesn't end the book by finding new love, Mm -hmm. you know, and it was kind of heading. I felt like, like, where is she going to go? I kept wondering, how is she going to end this book? And she didn't end it that way. And I thought... The way that it was that she ended was really poignant, and um, I shed a tear or two. I yeah. have to admit. So, again, that's called "From Scratch" by Tembi Locke, and I do highly recommend the audio. It's 
fabulous. We've had some really great memoir reads ready this year, and it's only February. I know, and I haven't been reading much straight nonfiction, which is really different for me. Other than the Malcolm Gladwell, I feel like I haven't. And I usually start the year with a like a good kind of like uplifting shot in the arm kind of nonfiction, and I didn't do that this year. So I'm going to have to check myself on that one. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Brene Brown was one of your go-tos yeah. for the new year. Or one, I think one of them was um, Shonda Rhimes, My Year of Yes. I think I started the year with that, which was great. Yeah, I have to do a little research. Maybe there's just not one that's come across my path that's really been intriguing. And I do listen, I have to say, to Brene Brown. Just, you know, I watch videos of hers Mm -hmm. every now and again just for inspiration. So I do listen to her, but I haven't just gone through one of her books again recently, which I probably should. I love me some Brene Brown. (laughs) Well, the last thing I read since the last time we recorded was a short story by Cather, by Willa Cather. Old Mrs. Harris was the story for February for the Willa Cather short story reading project that I've been doing. And I love this story. It's considered one of Cather's most autobiographical stories. And they speculate that she did wait for her mom to die before she published it because um, it, it is a story about three generations of women in a family. The grandmother, who was the old Mrs. Harris, her daughter, Victoria, and then the granddaughter, Vicky. And Vicky is based on Cather and Victoria on her mother, who, you know, the family started off in Virginia and they moved to Nebraska when Willa Cather was nine. So her mom was really a displaced Southern not necessarily a Southern belle, but, you know, a Southern woman of a certain class who was beautiful and had certain expectations. You know, she was raised in the culture she was raised in for that culture and moving to a pioneer town on the Great Plains was not something that her mother imagined for her as she was raising her daughter within the community in those traditions. So some critics look at her, or some readers, I should say, and and they think Victoria is kind of a selfish woman. And you could definitely read the story that way. I really had a lot of sympathy for her because she is a woman who is very friendly and wants to have fun. And here she is pregnant again. And there's a heartbreaking scene when she realizes she's pregnant again. It is so sad. Um, But the main gist of the story is the woman next door, Mrs. Rosen, who was a German-Jewish immigrant, and her husband lived next door. And they kind of represent the old world. And then the Southern family moving to the Great Plains that story set in Colorado represent the, you know, the old South and the new America. So you have like these different cultures coming together and some conflicts, but everyone's trying to get along. And I I just thought it was a beautiful story. And it's one of those stories of Cather's that if you visited her home, her childhood home in Red Cloud, Nebraska, you can really see the characters moving through that house. Not that you, you know, should delay reading the story. If you haven't been to Red Cloud, I'm just saying. Um, So I really, really enjoyed it. It's a beautiful story. And I think it's, you know, she wrote it in the 1930s, it's set in the 1880s, and I feel like it's just as relevant today hmm. as it was when Cather lived it and when she wrote about it, because it is about the different time periods in women's lives, from being the young, ambitious kid to the grandmother who is facing death. So, yeah. yeah. 
I have a question. So whenever people talk about Cather, they talk about her wonderful writing of landscape. Mm -hmm. Does she ever write about food? Oh, yeah. Yeah, she does. Yeah. And there is food. There is a little food mentioned in here. So I was wondering, because as soon as you get the Jewish people involved, there's usually good food. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. She uh, there's a scene where Mrs. Rosen and Mr. and Mrs. Rosen are they kind of take her under their wing culturally and then financially in part because she appreciates what they have to offer, the art and the literature and the languages and things. And there's a scene where Mrs. Rosen says, okay, you're going to eat with us today and you're going to eat the tomatoes the way we do with the oil. Mm. You know, because mm -hmm. this is how people do it in the world. Mm -hmm. and, I love it. and I love that. And Vicki, who's 16 in the story, she's thinking like it tastes like castor oil to her, but she's going to eat it anyway. Yeah. <laughs> um, but there are, and there, I know scholars have done, uh, written articles and books about Cather and food. So lots of food stuff yeah. in Cather, yeah. I love it. Biblio Adventures. Yeah, yeah, we've been busy with some Biblio Adventures. I went up, I did a quick trip up to see a friend from Ohio who was visiting her friend in Northampton, Mass. So I drove up there real quickly and um, I had never been to Northampton. It's a really sweet little town about an hour north from where the gentleman caller lives. So it was an easy, quick trip for me. And they took me to Broadside Bookshop, which is a really cool bookshop it's kind of funny inside in that the ceiling's a little bit low and it just felt so filled with books and tote bags and cards and Nikki McClure art I don't know if you know the artist Nikki McClure she's from the Pacific Northwest I love her art and it's often found in bookstores but not around here so I was so excited I'll put a link to her website in the show notes so I didn't buy anything. I was very controlled because my bookshelves literally runneth over right now. <laughs> but um, I was glad to get up there. And there was a used bookstore and another bookstore, I think. And I didn't get the chance. I wasn't there long enough. I think um, Northampton might have to be a little joint jaunt we take sometime in the future. That sounds good to me. Yeah. Is that anywhere near Amherst? It is. Okay. Actually, her friend lived in Amherst. So we I met oh. them there and then we drove over to Northampton. And she said it's interesting because Amherst is actually a bigger town and has the college. But for some reason, the town of Northampton is more vibrant. You know, there's more restaurants and more shopping. And it really I mean, I was there in the middle of a day on a Sunday, and it was packed. The bookstore was packed, which was fun to see. And the town was just hopping. And they had just had an ice sculpture contest. Oh, neat. So there were all these really cool ice sculptures around town. And it was just cold enough that they were lasting because we haven't really had that cold of a winter here. So that was really fun. So I'm sure there's different festivals and things like that. We should really check it out or go to an event at one of their bookstores. That yeah, would be nice. I would love that. That sounds like a great time. Yeah. 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 Well, we also had a joint jaunt. We did. Big old biblio adventure on the way to... Northshire Bookstore in Manchester, Vermont. We stopped in North Bennington, Vermont, and did some Shirley Jackson fangirling all over town. We did. Yeah, it was great. We we had our addresses that we wanted to visit. And as we were coming around this turn into town, to the left, there was this old, beautiful stone gate. And, you know, we curved around to the right 
And we both said it at the same time as I hit the brakes. That's the house. Because <laughs> <laughs> we had seen a picture of it. Yeah. We saw Shirley Jackson's first home that she lived in, in North Bennington anyway. And she lived there from 1945 to 1948. And, you know, according to like Ruth Franklin and, and other scholars, uh, the house was built in 1850 and she wrote the lottery there. Yeah. So supposedly one day pushing the buggy into the town center, which is just down the block and, you know, around the corner, um, she was going to Powers Market, which is where we went. And Shirley Jackson's day, it was a market, a grocery store where she did her shopping. And now it's a deli. Delicious deli. Highly recommend. Yeah. We walked in and it was really funny. We walked in and we did a beeline to this book rack. (laughs) Because we don't have enough books. <laughs> it was one of those like leave a dollar for paperbacks and two dollars for hardcover. Hard yeah. There was a little box with a hole in it on the top to of the put rack. The money in, yeah. But there were good books yeah, on this rack. There were for sure. Yeah, a nice spinner rack. So we we uh, ravaged that. Uh, we didn't ravage it. We spun it around and looked at a lot of the books and then we ordered sandwiches and delicious yeah delicious and they also have an espresso machine so we got cappuccinos and mochas and all sorts of things their desserts looked amazing i had regret that i didn't get one for later (laughs) but and they were fun too they had a clifford the big red dog cookie because they were across the street is the library which we went to next they were having a clifford the big red dog birthday party right um so the library is right across the street, and it is, I have the name of it written down here, the John G. McCullough Free Library. It was a beautiful library and a a really old, beautiful brick building. Uh, With marble sidewalk out front. And it was a snowy day when we were there, and we were both kind of like, whoa, because you know that that's going to get slick. Yeah, that was funny. We tiptoed into the library because neither of us wanted to fall. And we were tiptoeing around the library doing our cougar thing. And then the librarian stopped us. She's like, I'm sorry. I just, I'm getting a librarian vibe from the two of you. <laughs> like, who are you? It was really funny. Yeah. So we're like, no, we're just, you know, we're book people. And, you know, yeah. we told her we had a book podcast. So um, we were going then upstairs because upstairs is the kids section and we heard all these feet running back and forth. And, and that's when she stopped and talked with us. And uh, we saw on the wall going up the stairs, they had, they did a, a sleepover for kids stuffed animals. Yes. And the kids had to write out a little how to take care of my BFF. Right. And what they need before bedtime which was adorable. It was so cute. I mean, some of them were, you know, a snack. Some of them were brushing their teeth. Cuddles. Stories. Mm-hmm. It was really sweet. Yeah. So it was. it's a small library, but very active, it looked like. And one of the things I liked, and, and I've seen this at other libraries, but we talked to the librarian, and I'm really sorry we didn't get her name, mm-hmm. um, but she was lovely. Uh, they have... On the inside flap of the books at the end, a rating review system for people who've checked it out and read it to leave comments for the next person to check it out. And she said she also uses those on what to order next. And she also said she uses it when she has to purge books also. Because, you know, as you imagine, with it being a small library, as new books come in, 
sometimes you have to call, you know, and she said she uses those for. And the other thing we saw that shocked me was they had these mailing envelopes with free postage to mail your book back to the library. Yeah, I had never seen that before. And I don't know if that's because it's more of a rural library. Or just, you know, like, hey, take your book on vacation and don't worry about getting it back to us. I don't know. Yeah, that was really cool. Yeah. And it's the first library I've been in where you could check out snowshoes. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Snowshoes. And they also had um, stargazing equipment. I'd never yeah. seen that either. Yeah, so, they they do have that at the Branford Library oh, here. Really? You can check out this high powered microscope or telescope. I'd never that have seen yeah. that. Oh, that's good to know. I should tell Jim that he would love that. Yeah, huh. totally cool. So that oh. was really fun. And so after that, we walked up the street to find Shirley Jackson's second home that she lived in. And in this house, let's see, she lived there from 1953 to 65. And that's where she wrote things like The Haunting of Hill House. Yeah. And that was a a really nice looking home and very well maintained. Yeah, someone was definitely living in it. The other one, it was hard to tell if anybody was living in it. Yeah, I think the other one might have been a rental. Mm. I'm not really sure. Yeah. But it was, you had to walk past, uh, uh, you know, we're on the left hand side of the street walking, were we walking north, I think. Mm -hmm. And on the right hand side was the old uh, North Bennington train station which is really cool and gothic looking and that's been renovated by another mccullough so obviously the mccullough family was big in north bennington because the library is named after him and the train station had been renovated with donations from mccullough family members yeah and that's not like town offices or Mm -hmm. something like that so we didn't get to go in they they weren't open that day but we fangirled, we touched handles and sat in chairs and fantasized that, you know, Shirley Jackson Shirley was was there before us. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and if you haven't read any of her work, she's a really fantastic writer. Yeah. And sadly didn't live the most fulfilled life, I think. But yeah, you know. And she died pretty young. I think yeah. she was only in her late 40s when she passed away from an aneurysm or something mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. Yeah. And she also wrote really popular nonfiction. I think the one she wrote about her kids was something like My Life with Savages or Raising Savages or something like that. (laughs) Yeah, you could really, I I really had an image of her pushing a carriage down those streets. I mean, you could just feel it because it was such a little small town kind of triangle, you know, where her two different houses were and the market. And then there was another restaurant that she used to frequent but was closed when we were there. Yeah. And then the library, all of them were kind of in this little triangle yeah such a small town yeah. and we emily and i we were talking about like what must it been like to live there at that time period when it was still super expensive to make a phone call obviously no internet she didn't uh yeah. they didn't have a car initially i don't think so i think her husband walked to the college where he taught at bennington eventually they got a car and she would drive him to school and whatnot. But, you know, he was one of those men who had tons of affairs with his students. Yeah. And yeah. so they did have a challenging, challenging relationship. Yes. But it gave her fodder for her writing, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. then we hopped in the car and drove towards Northshire Bookstore. Yeah. Beautiful day for a drive with the snow because, yeah. you know, we were both a little snow deprived down here on the shoreline this year. So it was fun to see some snow. And we had some time to do some browsing yeah, at Northshire Bookstore before the event started. And it was an event with Simone St. James and Jennifer McMahon. 
Yeah, they were in conversation. Simone's new book, uh, The Sundown Motel, is just out now. And as you mentioned, McMahon's book, The Invited, is now on paperback. Yeah, and I think it had just come out as well. So they were kind of celebrating their two release dates. Yes, yeah. Yeah. So it was a really fun conversation. And Daffith, who's the events manager who was on episode 96 with us talking about Booktopia. Booktopia. Um, he was there and did the introduction and said that I don't remember how many copies of Jennifer McMahon's The Winter People he said they sold, but like eight or nine hundred copies, I think. Yeah. So I bought a copy of that when I was there. Yeah, she's a good writer. I really enjoy her writing. And their conversation was great. They even got into the weeds and did some inside baseball talking about their preferred notebooks. That was so much fun. It was really fun. And at the end, when we were the last ones there after they had signed their books and everything, and and they said, was that too much talking about notebooks? And Chris and I were like, no, no way. We loved it. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, we're weird like that. Yeah. Well, Jennifer McMahon on her Instagram feed takes lots of shots of the notebooks and pens and pencils that she's using. So if you're into notebooks and pens and pencils, go over there and subscribe because it's a great feed. And she also loves note cards. She said Mm -hmm. those multicolor note cards. Whereas Simone St. James likes one subject wire bound notebooks. Right. And she's very specific about that. Yeah. And one of the things they did, uh, I think Jennifer asked, or somebody asked Simone what she's working on next, and she said she's doing a book set in the 1970s. It's about a serial killer who was acquitted, so 1970s time frame, because she writes these novels where they're in two different time, mm-hmm. time frames. So you have the 1970s serial killer who's acquitted, and then the current day storyline is about a crime blogger who gets to interview this person. To get the real story. Right. So. Sounds good. Yeah, that does sound really good. And then Jennifer McMahon is writing a book about, based on an experience she had as a a child, where she went with her parents to friend's house, and in the backyard was a pool, a swimming pool that was black. That was black. And you couldn't see the bottom. And she was like, I am not going in that pool. Yeah. And then the boy that lived there started taunting her because he was in the water. So she was like, well, of course, I'm going to go in now because I'm not going to let this kid bully me. And she jumped in and she was it was such a frightening experience where she thought she felt things you know, touching her legs and stuff. And it's haunted her to this day. So Mm -hmm. she's writing a story that has a bottomless, scary swimming pool. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. I know, I think it's hilarious. Well, and she talked about too, how that she had that idea and she was starting to write it. And then she gets a call from her, from her editor, her agent one day. And uh, who said, you know, I was just in New York talking with your crew at the publisher. And we all decided you should write a haunted house story. Because you do ghosts so well. And she's like, a haunted house story? And they're like, yeah, we think you do an amazing job. So she's like, hmm. And then that's how she came up with the idea for the invite. Yeah, the invited. invited, Because she and her partner have built a house. Right. So she had that experience. She really literally knew how to build a house from the ground up. Yeah. And then she talked about how then as she was doing it, writing the books, like, well, how would a house become haunted? You know, she had to ask herself that question. Yeah. She also has a really interesting process that I find very stressful when you see pictures of it because she literally prints her manuscript chapter by chapter and then lays it out across her home 
by chapter. And then she starts moving it around to rearrange the story, which to my anal, like linear brain, literally makes me start sweating (laughs) the idea of it and watching the pictures of it. But she says it really works for her. So... You know, and she posts pictures yeah. about that, too. Yeah. She's not making this stuff up, no. ladies and gentlemen. She does it. <laughs> I'm always like, what would happen if the door opened and the wind oh, blew right. or something? But she said she staples the pages together, so I felt better. <laughs> <laughs> I'm always looking at the practical side of things. That's great. <laughs> and I have to say one more thing that Simone said. I don't remember who talked about reviews and how Goodreads is a scary place for writers, for authors, I should say who have books out because you see people giving your book, you know, one star review for ridiculous reasons. Sometimes I know somebody posted recently that somebody gave their book a one star review because the cover was bent when it arrived from Amazon. And it's yeah. kind of like, dudes, that's not the point of a review. Yeah. But what Simone does is she'll pick a book that she's loved, that she's absolutely loved. And she'll go and she'll look at the reviews of that. And she's like, you'll see the most ridiculous reviews she said, which then makes her feel better about the reviews that she gets. Because right. it is like it's all over the board. And as you and I know, there are books we've loved when one of us loved it and the other one was kind of like, ah. yeah. or, you know, even your own opinion changes about a book, depending on where you are yeah. in your life and what's going on. So anyway, it was a really wonderful event. I'm so happy we went. Yeah, it was lovely just to spend time together, too. We haven't had time like that in a long time. So yeah. it was really fun. I also had a couch biblio adventure. Oh, nice. I've been spending a lot of time alone. <laughs> so one of the ways that I fill my time is sometimes just to watch videos, even just kind of having them in the background is I enjoy because it's almost like someone's in the room talking to you instead of you just talking to yourself, which gets kind of scary. So Oprah has this new Oprah 2020 vision tour. And you can watch her interviews with people on YouTube. And I've been watching them and I'm really enjoying them. And she just had one with Michelle Obama. Awesome. Yeah. And a couple of the things I just want to mention. First of all, I think these are great interviews. Oprah's an amazing interviewer. And of course, she gets fun people to interview. But I didn't realize that Michelle Obama's book Becoming is the best-selling memoir of all time. Is it really? Wow. I had no idea. I'm not surprised. So, yeah. It's a great memoir. It's not just like who she is. Yeah. Either. Yeah. Like, I mean, obviously, that's what's attracting people. But it is a great memoir. It is. And that's one of the things that they talked about. And Michelle said, Michelle, on a first name basis, <laughs> said that she feels like the reason that it's been so popular is because it is time for women to be telling their own stories. And also that with the advent of social media, people are looking for real connection. And that, you know, particularly if you listen to her book on audio, as you just had a re-listen, you know, you do really feel this connection with her because she's so honest and so raw there. And, and just she, kind and yeah. compassionate. And and shares so much about herself. And that was Oprah's response to her was, you were also really vulnerable and people appreciate that. And you know, really shared, you know, hardships in her marriage and trying to get pregnant and scary times when they were in the presidency and also wonderful times and where she came from and where she ended up, you know, and all of it. So I really enjoyed it and highly recommend put it on when you're making dinner or something. That's cool. I'm totally going to listen to that one or watch it. I'll put it in the show notes. Well, I did have 
two more quick Biblio adventures I'll mention because I know we're getting a little bit on the long side. I went to the Jefferson Market Library in the village in New York City, which I didn't realize was the library that you and Aunt Ellen had taken a photograph in front of a couple weeks ago, right? No, was it, it was, a couple months it was ago? back in the, either in the fall or the spring. I oh, can't really remember. that far? I okay. think it was the fall. Yeah. All right. Well, I didn't realize that. So I went there and then I was meeting Ellen later for dinner and we were walking down the same street to the restaurant and I was, and she's like, oh yeah, that's the, I, that's the library where Emily and I took that picture. I was like, oh my God, like I didn't make that connection. Yeah. So um, that was kind of fun. It's also the library where I think his name's Frank from the librarian is in podcast works. Yeah. So someday I'm going to go and stalk him. <laughs> it is a neat library. It was, it, and it wasn't originally uh, built as a library. It's been repurposed. It was built in 1887 as a courthouse, prison and market complex. <laughs> Which is like weird combination. I mean, I could see the courthouse and the prison, but then adding the market. Yeah. Um, and it has a beautiful garden around it. Where pe- that When I was there and it was warm, people were really using, sitting out and reading. And, yeah. you know, people love their outdoor space in New York. Yeah, totally. And so I got there and it was really crowded. There was no table space left for me to do work. So I changed plans and I went walking around because that's Willa Cather's old neighborhood. They, and actually, in the library, they have a Willa Cather room oh, that's with so a, awesome. a big picture of her and a list of the books she's written. So I did. I got to see uh, Cather's first place where she lived in. Well, I should back up and say I didn't get to see the place because it no longer exists. It's been torn down. Um, but I did see her second house, which is still there. There's a plaque there that's been put up. She lived there. And also Richard Wright had lived there later so i kind of walked around it was rainy so when i was going towards her first uh village residence which is 60 washington square south it no longer exists it's been torn down and and nyu buildings are there now um so my second biblio adventure or third depending on how you want to chop things up was the nyu library it's the elmer holmes bobst library it took a while to get into because i had to secure a pass it's a beautiful, in quotation marks, because it's very modern. Mm. It has a red, it's a big box on the outside, a big red box, red stone. So it's quite striking. Just not my taste, mm-hmm. but I can appreciate it for the style that it is. But on the inside, there's this huge central that almost has something that looks like, not exactly chain mail, because it's more rectangular than chain mail, But this gold chain that goes from the first floor all the way up to like the 12th floor, I think Mm. it's huge atrium area. And what was interesting to me was that it has like a marble floor with a really funky pattern and then lots of glass, but it wasn't very echoey, Hmm. which I found really interesting. So that was fun. It was a really good day, even though it was rainy. I had my raincoat. I was prepared. And it was great to see Aunt Ellen and we had dinner together. Green-eyed envy over here. (laughs) They sent me a picture. We did. (laughs) In front of the library saying, look where we are. It was really fun. (laughs) Do you have any upcoming jaunts? I have some. Tell me. Well, on March 7th, I'm not sure I'm going to be able to make it to one of these, but I just wanted to alert listeners that... The Paper Bag Princess by Robert Munch is celebrating its 40th anniversary. And this is one of the first 
books that was a feminist fairy tale written 40 years ago. And I love that book. I love all of Robert Munch's books. And I used to read them to my kids. And they always pulled them off the bookshelf and wanted them to be read. So I wasn't like I was force feeding them. (laughs) But so libraries all around the country are doing celebrations of that book. So if you're interested in that book was meaningful to you or you have children or grandchildren, look for one. I'm going to be in Sedona next week. And so I'm not sure that's a travel day for us. So I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to to get to one. But if there's a bookstore in Sedona that's hosting one of those parties, I might try. Cool. And then on March 15th at two o'clock at Gibson's bookstore up in New Hampshire, Chris Bohalian's going to be there kicking off the um, Red Lotus the new book that I just talked about. It's not a formal presentation, I guess. It's more that he's going to have a bunch of swag and he's going to be handing things out. You can't buy tickets in advance or anything. They said just show up, but show up early. Excellent. So yeah. I'm hoping to make it to that. Cool. Yeah, I'd like to go along too if possible. Yeah. And then just a quick shout out on May 9th at 1 o'clock at Wood Memorial Library, Chris and I will be hosting Kimberly McCrate to talk about her book, A Good Marriage. And we will put that into the show notes. We would love to see you there. Yeah, come on. If you're in the area, please join us. It's a it's a great, beautiful library. I mean, it's a historic library museum and uh, lots, of, lots of space up there where the event will be. So come join us. We'll put all of that information in the show notes. Upcoming reads? Oh, my gosh. Um, I'm not really sure. There are, there are a couple... Um, but I'm not going to name any. Okay, I'm going to name a couple. I am hoping, I'm not hoping, I am going to, on the airplane tomorrow, start Shuli Kaywood's book, oh. A Small Thing to Want, Stories. Yeah. It's a, a group of short stories, and you just heard Chris's sigh because we fought over it, but I won. <laughs> I'm taking it on vacation. I know, vacation trumps everything. <laughs> and then I'll give it to Chris when I get back. And then I'm also hoping to read Girl, Woman, Other by Bernadine Evaristo, who was the joint winner with Margaret Atwood of The Man Booker in 2019, which was a big hoo-ha, which we've talked about already. Right. Yeah, because they chose two when most they were supposed to choose one. But right. Yeah. And Margaret Atwood even said, I don't need this prize. <laughs> <laughs> she, she's, you know, got a little bit of fame and fortune. Yeah. So. so those are two I'm hoping to dig into. And sh- I should have mentioned Shuli's book, A Small Thing to Want, is available for pre-order now. I'll put that into the show notes. But it the pub date is um, May 3rd. Very cool. All right. I'm going to list two books because I have them right here. Okay. Uh, they're both Booktopia authors. Oh, great. Yeah. So um, the first is a nonfiction, a memoir by Emily Bernard. Black is the body stories from my grandmother's time, my mother's time and mine. I did start reading it when I first got it from the library. She was stabbed. Oh, gosh. In New Haven. Oh, my. At a local coffee shop. And that it was an attack on multiple people. It wasn't an individual attack on her necessarily. um, But that really informs this story. Mm. And, and then the other book is a novel. It's a first novel, uh, Michael Zapata. The title is The Lost Book of Adana Moreau. And I think it's like a book inside of a book yeah. or something. It's, yeah. a, it's a book of about a book type yeah. thing. So I'm really looking forward to this. I'm, I'm seeing it's getting really great reviews. And I was just hesitant to say what I'm going to read next because I'm feeling fickle. Oh, well, that's okay. I'm feeling... 
I don't know, you know, that term FOMO, fear of missing out. Mm -hmm. I'm feeling that now when I look at my books. Do you ever feel that way? Oh, totally. Yeah. Like, ah. Yeah. And they just more keep coming. Today, the UPS guy, who's hilarious. I mean, you have to drive down a really long lane to get to my house. And some of the delivery people are kind about it. And some get really annoyed because they come every day with a book, you know, basically. (laughs) But today the UPS guy had I could tell I looked at him, he has two books, he's bringing me two books. But he talks, he's always on the phone. And he was like, I need pistachios, sugar, and rice. And I just wanted to stop him and say, well, I need to know what you're making. But I didn't. Anyway, well, um, hopefully we'll both just read as we need to. I'm hoping to read a book a day on vacation, which Jim thinks is insane. But that's my goal. Yeah. (laughs) Well, we look forward to hearing your report. Thank you. Coming up next, we have an interview with Ashley Olson, who's the executive director of the Willa Cather Foundation. Enjoy that. And until next time, happy Happy reading. reading. Well, we are so thrilled today to have with us Ashley Olson, who's the Executive Director of the National Willa Cather Center. Welcome, Ashley. I'm happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So everyone knows, in addition to being the Executive Director of the National Willa Cather Center, Ashley also oversees the Red Cloud Opera House, the Willa Cather Memorial Prairie, and the nation's largest collection of nationally designated historic sites dedicated to an American author. Wow, that's a lot. (laughs) And really, really interesting, Ashley. Can you tell us a little bit about what these national designated historic sites are? Yeah, I can. Of course, I tell people all the time that the National Willa Cather Center is such a unique organization to have these nationally designated historic sites that were acquired and restored in the very early years of our foundation's operations. And then the organization, of course, just continued to grow over the years, had an opportunity to acquire and help preserve a a very large, a 612-acre tract of native prairie near Red Cloud, as well as renovate and reopen the Red Cloud Opera House, which operates today as a performing arts center. So uh, there is a lot happening uh, as it relates to historic preservation and conservation and the arts. But to answer your question about the historic properties, they were sites that all of them are relevant to Cather's life and her writing in some capacity are crown jewel of our properties is Willa Cather's Childhood Home, which is not only on the National Register of Historic Places, but also a National Historic Landmark. And it's a building that uh, we'll be working to fully restore and reinterpret in the coming years. And then there's also the Burlington Depot. There are two historic churches and the Pavelka Farmstead, which was a setting in the final part of the novel My Antonia, and another historic house associated with the novel My Antonia, known as the Minor House. That's great. I've gone to Red Cloud several times. The first time I went was in the mid-90s, and it was such a magical experience to visit, especially Cather's childhood home, which is so prominent in, in books like The Song of the Lark, you know, to see her bedroom and the wallpaper that she describes the character describes putting up, but then what uh, Cather also put up as a, as a girl living in that room. I'm really excited about the preservation that's going on right now. 
We are too, of course, excited about the restoration and conservation work. The Childhood Home is a building, is a site that for a lot of our visitors, it provides a really engaging and meaningful experience. For folks especially, Chris, you mentioned the Song of the Lark, for folks who've read that novel, to walk up into the attic space and to walk into Cather's room and see the rose-strewn wallpaper that she describes in the novel is just a really clean experience. And I always really marvel at the fact that Cather's parents had the foresight to create that private space for their, their eldest daughter, to know that she needed that space to have privacy and to reflect and to, to dream and to write and to work. So it's a special place and uh, one that is in much need of preservation work, which is why we exist. So we're happy to be able to embark on on this project. That's great. And one of the, the big things happening right now with the foundation is the campaign for the future. And I'm wondering if you can tell our listeners a little bit about that. Yes, I would love to. Our Campaign for the Future is an ambitious endeavor to restore Cather Historic Properties, enhance programs, conserve our collection materials, and grow our endowment. And as part of the capital improvements that we'll be making to the Cather Historic Sites, we also seek to make capital improvements to a downtown building located next door to our Farmers and Merchants Bank, which is a site on the tour. It's a site that was mentioned in Cather's novel, A Lost Lady. And we'll be investing in the preservation of a a structure next door to that bank that will become a downtown boutique hotel. And the reason that's important, of course, is that We host a number of visitors every year from all across the nation and some internationally, in fact, who essentially were just looking to grow and expand the visitor experience and to ensure that we can accommodate larger groups and more people as our conferences and our programs continue to grow. So uh, there's the capital improvement side of things with the historic properties, Gather's Childhood Home, the Pavelka Farmstead are, are the top two priorities, and then there's the new development, which is the hotel. Yeah, that hotel will be really exciting to have a place so central to the center to be able to just, you know, walk across the street and be just what down the block around the corner from Cather's Childhood Home and other sites like that. That's going to be a, such a boon for the center and for Red Cloud. It really will. Uh, the wonderful thing about Red Cloud is. If you're, if you're downtown and you're centrally located, the community is small enough that you can essentially walk to most of the relevant sites on the Cather Tour. So it'll be a wonderful experience for our guests uh, to be able to do that. And, uh, of course, historic preservation and downtown revitalization are both things that this organization has worked very hard at for the last uh, six decades. So it makes it makes a lot of sense that we would continue that rich tradition of downtown revitalization that started with buildings like the Opera House and the Moon Block that became the National Willa Cather Center. Just continue those efforts and make sure that the Main Street of Red Cloud, which is also on the National Register of Historic Places, continues to be a, a really evocative and special place. I love this quote by David McCullough, the, the historian. He wrote that the marvelous thing about going to Red Cloud, Nebraska, 
is you can walk right into Willa Cather's world. There's the house you lived in, the bank, the opera house, the railroad depot, and the landscape. It is one of my favorite places in all of America. Wow. That's great. Ashley, I have a question for you. One of the things we talk a lot about on the podcast is our own biblio adventures. Chris and I love to go places and to visit, and Chris has been to Red Cloud. I never have been. But I'm wondering if our listeners want to take an adventure of their own to Red Cloud. Is there a particular time of year or an event that you recommend as a great starting off point for them? Yeah, well, we have... Uh, we're fortunate that our, our tourist season, as we know, starts to pick up in March uh, around the time of the Sandhill Crane migration, which is for conservation enthusiasts uh, and birders a really popular event of national significance. And that's something that intrigues you. March is certainly a great time to come, and it's a time uh, when we typically always have lodging availability, and it's, it's slower than June when our spring conference occurs. If you're looking for your first introduction, Hather, attending the spring conference is certainly a wonderful experience, and it is our biggest event of the year. It takes place the first weekend in June, and we typically have, I would say, somewhere between 125 to 200 attendees at that event. So it's a wonderful event. It's a little harder to find accommodations in the community because they are limited at present. So you might, if you come at that time, end up staying in a, a community nearby and driving back and forth. But our tourist season really runs from March uh, through October. So uh, I don't think there's a bad time to visit in that window. And uh, certainly if you come outside of the June conference, you, you might have a more uh, quiet and maybe low-key experience, how I would describe it. Yeah, I really get to soak in a lot of those historic sites and, and go to the prairie. Um, the, the prairie is amazing. You, you do have to drive to the prairie. It's a short drive from town. Um, but seeing it, even in winter, is quite dramatic, I think. I've, I've been there in spring and summer and winter. So, um, Ashley, can you talk a little bit more about the efforts to – eradicate invasive species and things like that on that prairie? Sure. Well, the Cather Prairie is is a special site, as you noted. We, we were lucky enough to acquire it in 2006. It was deeded to us by the Nature Conservancy. And at the time, it had been, it had been overgrazed a bit. And uh, we had about... I would estimate eight to 10,000 invasive tree species that had, wow. had really taken over uh, the lands. So we were able to work with uh, the Nebraska Environmental Trust. We were able to secure some grant funding to remove several thousand invasive tree species, species like the red cedar and the Chinese elm that had, had invaded the land and really in essence, the goal was to take the prairie back to its uh, pre-1900 conditions as Heather and, and her family would have seen the land when they first moved to Buckster County. That's really cool. That's, and that's amazing that there would be that many invasive species. Wow. And speaking of nature, I have one sandhill crane question for you. A little off topic, but I have only seen sandhill cranes once in my life, and it was just a sighting of two. 
But I, I think in Nebraska you get literally just flocks of them, correct? We do, yes. Uh, hundreds of thousands of wow. it's, it's remarkable. And how long are they there? I think, and this isn't my area of expertise, I have to admit, but the window of time, I believe, runs uh, at least two to three weeks. Is, is the concentration of the larger num larger you know number of birds migrating but we'll start hearing them um, I can I can sit on the porch at our home and hear the cranes some of them start early and uh, they're known to, to be here as late as April in some years so I want to get back to um, the campaign that you have in place. I work in philanthropy also, Ashley, so I'm a nerd about this stuff and love all the details. But I want to give you an opportunity to let our listeners know where you're at in the campaign, what you're trying to accomplish, and how they can donate themselves. Great. Well, we have, as I mentioned, it's, it is an ambitious campaign. We seek to raise $6.5 million, and... I'm pleased to say that we've we've already raised 73% of our goal, so about 4.7 million has been secured. And again, these funds will be used to uh, restore nationally designated historic properties associated with Cather's life and work. So places like her childhood home, Pavelka Farmstead, the Farmers and Merchants Bank, the Red Cloud Burlington Depot, the minor house, uh, two historic churches, and we'll be doing uh, some work also to enhance our, our programs, expand our educational programming specifically, and our outreach, as well as our conservation collection efforts and creating new exhibits and experiences within the historic sites once the restoration work is complete. And then uh, growing our endowment. Actually, the reason this campaign came about is because these historic sites had been owned for the last uh, 40 plus years by the Nebraska State Historical Society, which is now known as History Nebraska. They transferred ownership of the properties to us last January. And prior to that, had a management arrangement with the state wherein we cared for the properties, we provided the tours, we did routine maintenance, but we leave before that service every year. And so part of this campaign is not only about uh, local ownership and local control of the sites and enabling us to make capital improvement, but also ensuring that we can sustain and preserve the properties over the long term. So there's a component of the campaign that growing our endowment to ensure that long-term preservation is possible. So of course, we welcome at this stage of the campaign gifts of, of any and all sizes, and donors can, can make a gift online on our website at willacather.org or uh, call our office at 402-746-2653. That's fantastic. Having those, it's just a treasure to be able to see and be in a physical place where books take place that you've read and loved. And I've heard of visitors who've come too who haven't read Cather, or they might have been the spouse of somebody and got dragged along. Um, but then they get really turned on by reading Cather's novels and short stories after having seen these places and, and becoming curious in that way. Yeah, we see a lot of that. And I think that's 
you hit on exactly what makes Red Cloud and, and the National Willa Cather Center unique is that so far as we have been able to surmise, we do have in this little town of, of about a thousand people, we do have the largest collection of nationally designated historic sites that are dedicated to an American author. So that's something that's quite unique and, and very special. And it takes for a lot of people, I think, visiting here and walking through the doors of some of those properties to really, as you said, to get turned on to Cather and to, to want to immerse themselves in reading more of her work. How, now, Ashley, you're from Red Cloud originally, I, I think, if I'm not mistaken. And you've been with the foundation since 2008, and you've been with the executive, you've been the executive director since 2014. And I'm wondering if you wouldn't mind sharing with us a little bit about how you came to be interested in Cather. Sure. Of course, growing up in Red Cloud, I, I was familiar with Cather throughout my upbringing. And we, we were assigned probably like a lot of high school students at the time, we were assigned uh, to read My Antonia when I was in high school. And it was a book that really touched me. I, I enjoyed the book. And I think perhaps the reason I enjoyed it more than some of my classmates is I had a wonderful grandfather who, who really instilled in me an interest in history, especially local history. And when I was growing up, it wasn't uncommon for him to take me out on drives in greater Webster County. And he would point out sites of not only of family significance, uh, places where he was born, for instance, or where his family lived, but he always made a point of pointing out sites that were relevant to Cather and to her life. And so I was familiar with her work before it was assigned to me, of course, and had already connected some of the historic sites I'd seen in greater Webster County to her life and to her work. So fast forward to when I was in college, I had a strong desire to try to come back to the community. I really don't know why. That was not something a lot of my friends were doing at the time. And there weren't a lot of young people in the community migrating back. So it wasn't exactly on trend to do that. But I still had a desire to, to see if there were job opportunities that would bring me back to this region. And uh, I managed to find a position with the foundation as an accountant right out of college and came back and spent a year or so in that role and then a director of finance role and an associate executive director role before becoming the executive director. So I guess I was fortunate in a lot of ways that this opportunity came about and it's certainly been the type of work that keeps one engaged and excited and interested. There aren't a lot of positions you would find in communities the size of Red Cloud that afford you the opportunity to meet visitors from all over the country. It's, it's really special. I enjoy it a great deal. Well, listening to all of the job um, positions that you've held there, it's no wonder that you're having such tremendous success with this campaign. You obviously know your way around um, financial statements, etc. <laughs> I sure do. That's, uh, I always joke that, you know, financial statements are my happy place. So, well, you, you've uh, met yeah. you've met a fellow partner in that because not many people say that, but I say that too. So, uh, yeah. You know. Well, we're we're fortunate in a lot of ways. We have a a national board of twenty seven people who 
are just so engaged in the work we do and really tremendous ambassadors for the organization. And we also have a remarkable professional staff here in Red Cloud that works hard every day to help us meet our mission to, to promote Cather's legacy. So it's, it's really special and team effort and we have a great one. We sure do. Thank you all there at the foundation for the work that you do. We'll definitely put links in our show notes to the Willa Cather Foundation, willacather.org, um, so people can check that out and donate to the campaign for the future and also spend some time clicking around looking at all the great photos that you have of the houses and some of the artifacts in the prairie. Yeah, and then hopefully get a chance to go visit. I know I'd like to go with my buddy Chris here and <laughs> Maybe by the time we manage to do it, that new hotel will be built and we'll be able to walk everywhere. And um, it sounds like a fantastic place to spend some time. Well, we would love to welcome any of your listeners at any time of year. We have a, a lovely guest house here known as the Cather Second Home that was owned by Cather's parents and has become a, a bed and breakfast. So you know, whether it's you or your book club or whatever the case may be, we're uh, we're excited to, to host you and we hope to, to see you and your listeners very soon. Thanks so much, Ashley. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This was fun. Thanks for listening to The Book Cougars with Chris Wallach and Emily Fine. To keep the bookish conversation going online, join our Goodreads group or connect with us on social media. If you'd like to contribute to our hunt for a good read, you can donate on Patreon. And if you have a minute to review us on whatever app you use to listen to us, we appreciate it. It can help other listeners find us. Thanks, everybody.